Welcome to the PhD Talk podcast. I'm Eva Lanza, a professor in civil engineering and blogger on the side. And I am Sarah Cameron, PhD student and work in organizational psychology. In this podcast, we talk about PhD research and interview current PhD candidates, as well as those who work closely with them. We hope you'll stick around. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of PhD Talk podcast. This is episode 88, and today we're going to talk about the second year of the PhD, which is completely in line with where Sarah is now. So, Sarah, can you tell us a bit, what, what is the second year of your PhD going to look like? What are you going to focus on this year? Yeah, so the at least the first probably half of the second year will be focused on data collection. So I'm currently now in the process of getting... Uh, ethics approval from the university and making sure that our data management plan is in place and that we have all the actual kind of procedures in place before we go out and start recruiting participants. Um, And in my mind, it's been a bit surprising, I guess, just how much time it takes or how many details there are to think through when you're designing uh, a lab study that you don't just bring them in and kind of see what happens. Everything needs to be very specific so that, uh, especially because I'm not running all of the, uh, I guess, experiments myself, I'll also be having students run them. So it, it needs to be very explicit what will happen. Um, so that's been really filling my days these last weeks and will that will continue to be the case for the next probably six months or so. I'm hoping that we'll have our full data set by the new year, maybe if, you know, a few weeks into into January. Um, and then I guess the second half of uh, the second year of the PhD then would be analyzing the data, cleaning the data, um, and maybe starting to write papers. But uh, I can also imagine that that process will take longer than one might originally think. So I don't want to set the bar uh, too, too high. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, we've already talked about your data collection before, and now you mentioned that you're working on both the ethics approval and the data management plan. So I, I wanted to to talk a bit more about those kind of preliminary steps for before you start to gather data. So what does the, the ethics approval process look like at your university? So at our university, there's quite a few uh, documents that you need to fill out, basically explaining what exactly participants will be going through in the experiments. Uh, and this is all specific to the psychology department. Um, And then you have to also detail what the potential impact might be on the participants of completing your study. And and so for me specifically, because participants will be discussing uh, areas for improvement in their relationship, um, it might bring up negative emotions, it might make them think back on difficult experiences. And so there's some kind of justification we have to explain of why it's necessary for us to collect that data. And then what supports will be available for participants uh, at the university if they do find the study quite difficult. And so that's the ethics side of things. And then there's a board or a committee at the university who meets and reviews all these materials and basically says, yes, you're good to go. No, we need more information or no, uh, you can't, (laughs) you know, change your plan. Um, And so I think generally most studies would fall into the the second option there where they want to see a few changes and then you have the green light to go and collect data. And um, is it so that you always have the full IRB review or there's also the 
um, if it does not involve very sensitive aspects that you can apply for the waiver and that then it's a shorter review? For us, because we're dealing with human participants, there's always the full uh, ethics board review. Um, and for me, I think it's a little bit more intensive as well because we're not just asking participants to complete a survey, but they're actually coming into the lab and having an interaction with somebody else from their from their workplace. So it's a little bit more stringent, I think, than what other, you know, some of my colleagues might have. Um, yeah. And what's the, the timeline? So you would send in the documents and then you wait until the next meeting of the 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 panel takes place and they review it and get back to you. So what's the kind of the expectation of how long this takes? So I, as I, as it's been explained by the department is that you send your documents in, I think two weeks in advance. So I'll actually do that either today or tomorrow. And then the committee meets and reviews, or I guess they will have reviewed your application already in advance and they discuss it. And then I think within two weeks following that meeting, they'll give you feedback and you have an opportunity to um, respond to their feedback. Um, and I gather from my supervisor, because he's been through this process a number of times, that generally if you have the documents mostly in order and provide you know, sufficient detail, then there aren't too many issues. And for us as well, the protocol that we're using has been used not by researchers at our university, but in Ghent. And so there's um, you know, it's not like a protocol that we're just coming up with ourselves and a lot of research using the same procedure. So I think that should also help our, our case. And then for the, the data management, how does it work at your university? Does every PhD study require a data management plan or it's more every experimental study separately that requires its data management plan? Yeah, it's every experimental study requires their own data management plan. And again, my case is a little bit complicated because I'm working on this. Well, my PhD currently is funded by this uh, research project between three Belgian universities. And the idea is as well that once we have data, we will share it between the pseudonymized data between the universities. And so I'm not only dealing with the data management officers of the VUB, um, but also um, signing additional documents and making additional plans for how the data will be shared or transferred to the other universities. Um, so that's, yeah, something that is, to be honest, not my favorite task, but I also understand that it's necessary because we are dealing with potentially uh, very sensitive data. Yeah. And to set up the, the data management plan is that you already mentioned that there's people at VUB that assist with that, if I understood it correctly. So mm -hmm. is that something that is organized through the central library or it's a different department that helps researchers with data management? Yeah, so this has been a whole maze for me. And I don't know how it's organized at other universities, to be honest. But at the Vea Bay, I, I mean, they have their online, I guess it's a SharePoint. And so there's a PhD section that you can go to where they have forms for your ethics approval and your data management plan. But they also advise you to contact one of their data management officers. And so they're generally people with a legal background who can give you advice. It's mostly to do with GDPR um, because that the GDPR has specific regulations on how this kind of data needs to be pseudonymized and how long it has to be stored for and how it can be transferred, this kind of thing. And so uh, because I'm not a lawyer myself and certainly not a data privacy lawyer, mm -hmm. it was good to have their uh, more expert advice. 
Yeah, that's interesting. At at TU Delft, we um, so data management and awareness around the use of data is organized through the central library, and then every faculty has a data steward, and we uh, interviewed a data expert in season one, and, and I will link to the episode in the show notes. And um, if I, like, it, she did not have a, a legal background. So the part that you mentioned that at the very it's mostly really people with a legal background and the focus on um, the GDPR aspects, that's, that's different, I would say, from from what I've seen in Delft and, and uh, maybe other Dutch universities where the focus is really on data storage and then maybe also more within the technical universities, the focus is on moving to fair and open data and to to assist us with how we can make our data sets available in a way that others can work with it later. Mm, yeah. Yeah, I, I do think there's maybe some... I'm sure there are supports within the VUB for that as well. I find my whole experience at the university is kind of finding out that they have these services that I didn't know existed. Um, and so I think there must be, I think inside the research and grant office, maybe, I think in the research office, there is support there. Because, I mean, I think probably every university these days is trying to encourage their researchers um, to participate in open science. But yeah, especially with the kind of data that, um, in a psychology department you collect, it, it's not exactly clear how you go about that because so much of it needs to be uh, pseudonymized. Yeah, it's yeah, quite different from my data sets, which is just uh, you know load and uh, structural responses yeah. and very, very dry measurements. Yeah, yeah. The, the bridges aren't offended if you share their mm-hmm. information. Yeah, it's... yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so the other thing that you worked on very recently is the proposal and the defense of that. So I wanted to to check in and see how that's going and uh, when you expect to hear back from them. Yeah, so I will hear back in eight days looking at my calendar. So that's exciting. And uh, I mean, of course, at this stage, I've already had the defense. And at this point, there's nothing I can do just except for weight. Um, and I knew that, you know, going into it, I think I had a relatively good position, but of course you don't know how strong the other candidates are. So uh, I am yeah, eagerly awaiting that, that email that I'll get next Friday. Um, but I think I'm also in a fortunate position that I can just carry on with my uh, planning my studies because regardless of whether or not I get the grant, the work that I'll be doing in the second year doesn't actually change so much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was going to be my follow-up question. Like, how how would your second year <clears throat> look like? Whether you get the proposal funded or whether it does not get funded, are there any particular differences of the that are function of the outcome of this? Yeah, so I mean, the main one would be that it would give me an extra year for the PhD. So right now I have four years of funding. And if I get the proposal, or if I get the grant, then it would be five. Um, And but I think, you know, for the second year, that wouldn't change what studies I'm going to do or anything. Um, In terms of 
future work, it does give me a little bit more freedom or flexibility in terms of research topics because right now I'm on a grant that my supervisor and his uh, fellow PIs at the other Belgian universities received. And so uh, any research that I do has to be within kind of the scope of that grant. Whereas, as I understand it, with the FWO money, um, once you get the grant, you're I think they understand that the proposal you put in at the beginning before you start your PhD is they don't expect you to stick to it to a T. Um, I think especially knowing that it's being written by um, mostly master's students or first year PhD students that plans inevitably change. Um, and so in a way that would give me a little bit more flexibility if I want to, uh, you know, go beyond this, uh, the confines of studying emotional connectedness. Um, although that is already quite broad. So I don't know in reality how much it would really change. And for our department, I think the main difference would be that uh, because I'm hired right now on this grant, that if I then um, my funding source switches, then my supervisor would hire somebody to replace me. And so we would have a bigger group of researchers studying um, emotion dynamics, which would be nice. Mm -hmm. And in terms of additional um things that require funding, such as travel for conferences, does that change whether you get the grant as well? Does that give you more flexibility to travel or it's already pretty much the same uh, regardless? Yeah, I think it would be more or less the same. It's more just who I kind of go to for approval. So mm -hmm. right now, because the funding is through the university um, or through the grant that my supervisor got, uh, I... I'm in contact with the university when I need reimbursements or if I need approval to go. Whereas if I do get the FW grant, then I'd be dealing with that organization themselves. Um, however, in Flanders, um, or at Flemish universities, the salaries of PhD students are generally aligned to whatever the FWO sets. And so uh, if the FWO, you know, because of inflation decides that their PhD students are going to get more money for travel or more money for their monthly income, then the other Flemish universities generally have to align to that. Mm -hmm. uh, so and from the day to day, there's not really that much of a change. That brings me to a, a, an additional side curiosity question. You mentioned inflation and the impact on, on the salaries and, and uh, uh, other budgetary aspects. Is there an automatic uh, indexation of the salaries linked to inflation for the PhD candidates? Or is it something that they decide on annually? Or... Yeah, I think they decide on it annually. And I saw recently, I think, so this month in September, that they were increasing our salaries by 2%, uh, which, I mean, okay, that's not nothing, but also when inflation is 10%, um, it's, yeah, it's not really on par. Um, but uh, I also know that as a PhD student in Belgium, we are quite well compensated relative to others around the world. So I'm, you know, at a minimum, I'm grateful for that because I know that for to be paid to study is a huge privilege and that's not something that people in many other countries have. So, mm -hmm. Well, you could as well say to, to be paid to do the work of a researcher is what one would expect to receive on the other side of the medal. Yeah, no, indeed, indeed. So I'm curious how things will evolve, because I also know when you're working for a private organization to just increase the salaries for your staff, um, is a, you know, there's not as much red tape in that process, whereas 
because these universities are publicly funded and they have to be kind of indexed to what the FWO is doing, these increases are, I imagine that it's a more bureaucratic process than um, simply the HR team saying, okay, yeah, let's give them an increase. So I'm curious to see how it will evolve. And if you just now look at your day-to-day, -day, what does a day in the life of Sarah doing research look like now as, and how is it different from one year ago when you were starting your PhD? Wow. Um, it's pretty, it's hard for me to sum it up how different it is because the changes feel quite significant. I think when I started my PhD, I had a lot of doubts as to whether or not I made the right choice in doing it in the first place and if I chose the right program and uh, if I was qualified to be there. I have all these doubts that I know are normal, um, but I think I had a lot of kind of decision fatigue about that, that I'd already made the choice, but I was still stewing over whether or not I made the right one. Um, and now it feels like full steam ahead. Like there's not, uh, I, I don't have those doubts anymore and I feel much more comfortable in uh, the choice I made and my own capabilities, which is really nice. Um, I do miss the amount of free time that I had a year ago because I can feel how Uh, there's always seems to be more that I want to do in a day than I actually have time for. Mm -hmm. And in terms of, of tasks, how, how are they different now as compared to a year ago? Um, I think it just seems more varied. So when I first started, because I was just making the research plan, it was a lot of reading and I think probably reading only for the first three months, whereas now... I mean, I was at a conference earlier this week and now I'm today I was collecting scales so that when I bring participants into the lab, I can upload these scales to uh, our software program um, that our development team is editing so that they're already integrated um, into the review task that the participants do. And uh, yeah, speaking to some colleagues to coordinate meetings and just feels like there's more varied tasks, whereas when I first started I was, you know, I mean, first of all, it was COVID, so nobody could go to the office and I was just reading and that was more or less it. So I also like to have more uh, variation in my day. Yeah. And we already touched on this uh, in previous episodes, but how has now the sort of uh, tail end of the pandemic changed the split between working from home and going to university and uh, um, how you distribute your time between different physical spaces, so to speak. Yeah, um, that's also been a nice change that I've been in the office now, maybe two days a week since the summer, I would say. Um, and that's been a really nice development. Uh, and, you know, last week we were hosting, our department was hosting a conference at the university. And so all of us were there for the week. And it's been really nice to develop stronger relationships with my colleagues and be able to have those more open-ended conversations than uh, just that I guess what I found we would typically have on on teams um, and so fingers crossed that that will continue to be a possibility for the course of the uh, next yeah well this year um, although I did see today that COVID numbers at least in the Netherlands I'm not sure about in Belgium or hospitalizations were going up so um, yeah hopefully it doesn't become a repeat of what we had the last two years but yeah let's see touch wood. Yeah. And in terms of the 
the lab studies that you'll be doing, those will be in in a lab environment. So that will also require you to be more in Brussels itself or how will that affect your split between working from home in Amsterdam and uh, traveling to Brussels? Yeah, so it is still, we're, it's a process that we're kind of figuring out. Our plan is that uh, the research assistants who will be doing the bulk of the data collection, they will probably go to the participants' workplaces to collect the data. Um, just to make it a little bit lower barrier for them. And so I think as a backup option, we'll have it that they can come to the lab in, at the VU Bay in Brussels if for whatever reason they don't have space to do it at the university. Um, but I am hopeful that for most participants, it's fine just to have the research assistant go to their workplace. Um, and I think maybe I'll go a handful of times to kind of oversee the process, but hopefully it will be fine for the the students to do the data collection themselves because uh, with the sample size that I need, I think I could spend years just overseeing the data collection. So uh, ideally, I don't actually need to be there myself um, every time. And how many participants and how many different companies are you targeting at the moment? So we need, this is, I mean, purely for our, so that we have enough power in our analyses, but I think about 170 dyads, so leader follower pairs. And the procedure itself, uh, I think, will take about two, two and a half hours. Uh, so for people who are working, it's not insignificant. And so uh, that's why we're trying to make it as kind of low barrier as possible for them to participate. Um, mm -hmm. But I'm also expecting that recruitment will be a bit of a struggle. Yeah. yeah. And um, around which, which months are you expecting to be in the midst of data collection? The plan now would be end of October to start and then November, December, and maybe into January as well. We're using students to recruit uh, the dyads. And so in exchange, the students get course credit and the dyads will get paid to participate. But because of the students needing course credit, there is a bit of a timeline. I think they need to have the diets recruited by December, the end of December. Um, and so now I just need to make sure that our the um, software program that we're tweaking a little bit um, is finalized and that the SX approval comes in so that uh, we have enough time to actually start the data collection. And you mentioned the students, um, they would have to finish that by December. And that is because the semester ends in February, right? They have exams the yeah. January, end of January, more or less? I believe so. Yeah, I should know this because I guess I'll be grading those exams. But um, <laughs> I think it's, yeah, it's end of, Janu end of January, mm -hmm. beginning of February. Yeah, some sometime after Christmas. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, and that's uh, perhaps as well something to note here that that's uh, different in Belgium as compared to other countries where the semester ends before the Christmas holiday. And I was curious, do you have colleagues in your research group, fellow PhD students who are currently in the second year and who have uh, uh, shared some of their experience with what the second year is like for them? Yeah, I have. So there's one other PhD student in our research group who started at the same time as me. And so uh, we can always kind of compare experiences. And I think 
it's been similar for her that just the sense of that when you start, there's inherently a lot of self-doubt. And as you go to conferences and get more feedback, you also get more confidence. And so I think for both of us, that's been nice to just kind of settle in and hit our stride, so to say, and feel more comfortable in our roles. Um, And I mean, now it also goes to show, I guess, how different PhD trajectories can look because the our day-to-day right now, I think, is very different because, you know, she's working on a meta-analysis and I'm working on, uh, yeah, well, preparing to run these experiments. And so our day-to-day tasks are completely different. Mm-hmm. There's, um, I would say, from what I observed in a research group in, in Delft is that we typically, or many PhD candidates, have some kind of a dip in the second year so we talk about the, the famous second year dip because you start to build up steam build up steam build up steam and at some point you either hit a wall because you get overwhelmed or you uh, lose motivation because at some point you realize oh i'm i still have to do so much and time is running out or on the other hand this never seems to end so that's uh, um something that that has its uh uh, like that's famous as the, the second year dip. And I wonder if that's something that's that comes up in the conversations within your your group or if it's more uh, that's something that is field specific. Yeah, I haven't heard of that in our research group specifically. I think maybe I've heard it referenced on podcasts before or, um, you know, some blogs about doing a PhD. I do think, however, that in our specific research group, everyone who's in there who's passed their second year now, a big chunk of their PhD was in COVID. And so that really morphed the experience, I think, of having the second year dip that I think everyone was in a dip for maybe two years because of COVID. And so uh, I I know everyone struggled with that, of feeling like they weren't making progress and they weren't being able to, you know, present their research and meet with their supervisor in person. And it just disrupted things in so many ways. I mean, professionally, but also personally, of course. And so I am curious for myself if that second year dip will (laughs) come into play. I think sometimes I I remember when I started my undergrad, uh, there was some saying of how like you arrive in first year and thinking, thinking, you know, everything, and then you leave in fourth year. And like the true sign of learning is realizing how much you don't know. And I could imagine that that maybe plays into the second year dip that you start off you know thinking like okay and you know I'm I'm doing things I'm making progress and then you really get into the flow of maybe it's writing your first paper or collecting your first data set and realizing it's kind of like you, you don't have ignorance as bliss anymore the um, your eyes are wide open and you see how much work it actually takes and maybe that factors into the dip I don't know mm-hmm. and I, I think it, just as you mentioned that COVID-19 has been such a disruptor maybe in some parts things opening up again now puts more people back into the, the honeymoon phase of the beginning of the PhD, but mm-hmm. being able to go to university and actually see people and travel. And it's, uh, it's, it, it breaks down the, the monotony of uh, uh, before when the second year was similar to the first year, but with more work and more, uh, more things to add and, and at times more things that go wrong than in the first year. Yeah. Yeah, because I think that that makes sense that it's it feels like such a shift for us 
to be able to actually see one another in person. And so, um, yeah, but I, I can, I'm not holding my breath that the second year dip won't happen for me just because it's also, I mean, the more you do, the more that uh, things can go wrong, um, especially when collecting data. I think that's my biggest fear now that serious mistakes will be made. And yeah, I mean, it would be so time intensive for me to go and have to recollect data. So yeah, fingers crossed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then as we were preparing to to do this uh, uh, episode on the second year, I actually went back into my archives to try and remember what I did in my second year. Because if you, if you would have asked me what I remember, I, I don't really remember what I did in my second year. Um, but I actually went to, to look back into my archives and I noticed that in my second year, I started to use a very rough uh, task management or planning system in which I was just using Word files of a running to-do list of what I needed to do in a certain month and uh, what I had to do in a certain week. Um, and I also didn't have that many meetings. So I, I, I was mostly using a paper planner at the time, but then I also had like this list of overview. Okay, this is what, what my what I'm going to do in the week. This is what I'm going to do in the month. And so from that, I um, I have a sort of an idea what I did by because I, I wrote down this is what I want to do. And then I also had the list of this is what I actually did. Um, so I, I, I could look at that again. And I also had a this master to-do list with deadlines because I didn't have that many deadlines. So I just had like this list of that, these are the upcoming deadlines in a few months from now. Um, and based on that, I can say then I, well, and that's something I remember. I remember I did did experiments in my second year and that most of my time was spent in the laboratory. And that's indeed, uh, uh, what I see looking back at my list that I finished, uh, experiments on 18 specimens, which was uh, quite a number of experiments because we did up to six experiments per specimen. So we, we had quite a, a number of tests there and a lot of data. So I also used or had the habit of um, processing the data right after every experiment. I had like this uh, sort of mental checklist, like come out of the lab, wash my hands, change shoes, uh, uh, it or put the data in my computer, run it through, through my through my code, put the figures in 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 the report, uh, update the report to make sure that I wouldn't have to do all of that after all the experiments because then it would be an, just too much to handle. So yeah. I, I I know I, I it was a lot of like routine, well, kind of routine work like every, every experiment to do that, look at the photographs of every experiment, select the ones for the report. And I know that at the same time, and that's perhaps a part that I don't remember that much, I also was finishing up my literature review. Since I started experiments right at the start of my PhD, um, I didn't have the first year of fully reading and then getting into the lab. So my literature review was also more drawn out over a longer time. So I ended literature review, I think, towards the end of the second year. And something that I had forgotten almost is that we also were asked to 
go inspect a bridge and, and do some calculations to figure out what was up with the bridge. So we did a case study of that and somewhere at the, also in the middle of my second year, I pretty much forgotten about it. So <laughs> looking at those logs, I was like, oh yeah, that was the time that we went to see the bridge there and wrote a report about that. And since it's also the time that I finished the first uh, big chunk of experiments, I also had started to work on the first journal paper of uh, describing the experiments and, in, and the analyses of the results. And I also already quite early on, or relatively early on, worked with a, a supervising a master's student as well as a student assistant. Um, so that also took some of my time to uh, to supervise them and guide them and uh, uh, help them with with their work. And I also took one course, a technical course in uh, actually in mechanical engineering, a uh, course on, on fracture mechanics, um, which I I essentially didn't sit through the lectures. I bought a book. Uh, read the book, worked through the exercises, and then I went to see the professor to uh, discuss some questions that I had about theories and the exercises. And I didn't, I didn't take the exam because I, I, after doing the exercises myself, I, I thought, okay, now I know how to apply the theory and I, I didn't sit through the exam, so I didn't get any credit for that. At that time, there was also no doctoral education program, so I had the feeling... I have achieved what I wanted to achieve with this, and, and that's yeah. that's where it ended for me. Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't necessary for you to get course credit or no, anything. No, no, no. I remember for one class for the uh, the concrete bridges class, I I actually did go through all through all the lectures because it was also the course offered by my daily supervisor and very relevant for my research. And, course fully dedicated to concrete bridges, and I took the exam, and I remember that he wrote like the official little sheet of paper with my grade. And I went to the office and they were like, yeah, but you are not a student. You are uh, an employee. So what do I do with this piece of paper? And I ended up keeping it for a long time, this little piece of paper with my grade on it. And at some point I must have thrown it in the recycling. (laughs) It also never got officially registered because they didn't know what to do with it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and when you think of it more broadly, how would you, did you experience a second year dip or was the second year all smooth sailing for you? I think it was mostly smooth sailing. I I, if I remember mostly having some frustration towards the end of my PhD with just a uh, um, I wanted to graduate. I wanted to mm. to make sure I got out on time because I knew my contract was ending, and I had this somehow in my brain. I had already gone so far that I was I was I was going to be uh, unemployed, and I was not going to get unemployment benefits, and I was going to lose my apartment, and I was going to end up living under that bridge that we went to inspect. Uh, <laughs> so I, I already had this this full scenario in my brain that I was going to have to sleep under that bridge that I was going because it has like a little door and I was going to go camp out there until I would finish my PhD so that I, I had that complete uh, uh, scenario in my brain of of, of, uh, of, of poverty and ruin and in, uh, in not finishing on time and 
I, I think that's that's more the the frustration that I had at the end of of uh, um, like having to wait quite a long time to get feedback on my chapters and and uh, getting nervous to uh, also because I I wanted to finish I I had uh, uh, we we got married the at the end of the third year of my PhD and I was at the point like okay let me just finish this and and then I can move to to live with my husband and I I want to pass me so I can move on with my life so I think the the hardest year for me was the the last one to get everything done and get out and then I ended up actually wanting to stay part-time or end up <laughs> staying part-time yeah yeah funny how life works that way mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think that's also pretty much was in line with sort of the other aspects of life right I I got married I wanted to be done with the long distance aspect mm. and, and that was uh, uh, the main motivator to to really push on finishing and then when things took a little bit longer to get signatures and approvals and, and feedback I, I started to get mostly impatient and almost like a cartoon character with steam coming out of the ears or nose of like <laughs> yeah just let me get there. Yeah. Because your husband was in the US at that time or in Ecuador? He was, yes, at that at that time he was still in the US. But yeah. already we were planning to, at the end of his, essentially at the end of his visa to for him to return to Ecuador and me to join him there. So this has been episode 88 in which we discussed the second year of the PhD. We looked at uh, Sarah's expectations for the second year, some general musings on the second year and the famous second year dip, and uh, what Eva remembers from her second year. I hope you enjoyed today's episode, and we'll be back next week with more on PhD life and research mechanics. Thank you so much for listening. Mm-hmm.